The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. This year, we had a bumper crop in our orchard park in Toronto, Canada. Our cherry and plum trees produced enough fruit for all of our volunteers. We ate lots of the fruit fresh. Some of us made plum jelly. There was so much fruit that we were also able to share the harvest generously with park visitors and community members. So, I'm just wondering, what do you do when you're blessed with a generous harvest? It's so wonderful to share it with friends, and it's also wonderful to preserve and enjoy the harvest throughout the year. Now, some people are really big on canning. Others make baked goods for the freezer or jellies or jams. But dehydrating the bounty is also a terrific idea. Dehydrated foods are easy to store and they can stay fresh for up to a year. But some foods are easier to dehydrate than others. And many people don't realize that some dehydrated foods need to be pasteurized in order to be safe to eat. So dehydrating the harvest is what we are going to be talking about in today's show. My guest is Teresa Maroney, author of The Beginner's Guide to Dehydrating Food. And she'll tell us what tools we need to dry homegrown foods. She'll also share some food safety tips and some recipes. Now, before we dig into today's episode, if you're listening to the live broadcast, you can win a copy of Teresa's beautiful book. All you have to do is send us an email during the show. So send in a question, a comment, or just write us to say hi, and we'll enter you into the contest. Write us at instudio101 um, at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include your first name and tell us where you're writing from. So on the line is Teresa Ramaroni. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Susan. <laughs> I'd love to find out a little bit more of when you got involved in dehydrating food. What brought you to this interesting adventure? Well, 
We used to, and we still do to some extent, but what started it is back in the 80s, we were doing a lot of traveling into the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and other areas where we would go fishing and camping and all that sort of good stuff. And it became necessary to lessen the load that we were carrying. And also in the Boundary Waters in Quetico Provincial Park, you can't bring in cans or jars or anything like that. So you are forced to bring in dried foods. And at that time, we started purchasing the prepackaged mixes that you get at the camping store, you know, beef stroganoff and all that stuff. And we found that they were not only very expensive, but not very good, way too salty, um, didn't like the seasoning, just basically didn't like them. And so I learned how to dehydrate a lot of foods that I couldn't buy dried, and I was packing my own meal mixes, and that's been... Like I say, since the mid-80s that I've been doing that. So it sounds like it's become quite a passion for you. Yeah. I it, Once you start it, you just sort of start thinking, oh, I can dry that. Oh, that would be good. And it's gotten way beyond just packing meal mixes. I mean, I dry foods just because I enjoy the the finished product. It's a great way to store things without taking up a lot of room. And we also have a cabin in northern Minnesota, and I like to keep dried foods up there so that uh, we're very far from a grocery store. So if I want some vegetables or fruits or something, I can bring up my home dried stuff and just rehydrate it, and I'm ready to go. So that's been uh, something that has really added to my options up there. Now, were you ever a person who was into canning at all? Or is that not, like I'm looking at, the, I always found canning a little bit arduous. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you find it easier than canning or other ways of storing and, and preserving foods. It's different is, is what it is. Yes, I have done a fair bit of canning as well. Um, it's just a different way of doing it. It takes up a lot less room. Dried foods are much more... Um, space efficient than canned foods. For example, uh, if you want to, if you have a rhubarb crop or something, you can take uh, what would take four quarts, four quart jars of cut up rhubarb if you canned it will end up being about two cups of dried rhubarb and you can use it the same way. So, and actually when you think about even freezing that rhubarb, that it, it takes a lot less space than the yeah, fresh... Yeah, exactly. It, it's just a, it's a very space-efficient way to preserve foods. And it's not exactly the same as canning. It's not the same product, although you can use a lot of the things in the same way. Apples, for example, um, you can can them, you can freeze them, you can do all kinds of things and make pies or whatever you want to do. You can also dehydrate them. They take up a lot less room. They're shelf-stable. You can have nice dried apples to snack on, which I just love. You can rehydrate them to make pies. You can make applesauce out of them. You can do all kinds of things, and they take up less room. If you have a power failure or the grid goes down or something, your food isn't at the mercy of a freezer or a refrigerator, and you also don't have to have a nice canning shelf in your storage. Uh, you can still have that, but it just takes up so much less room when less it's been dehydrated. Room. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. If you go online and you look and see what dehydrators, you know, they can be very expensive. I was just, 
um, checking online the different prices and they can be, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So when you started doing the dehydrating um, of the different foods, like what tools did you use and do you have to get the best? No, you really don't have to get the best. And the dehydrator that I use the most, I've had since the mid-80s. It's the exact same one. It's not just another version of the same model. It is the same machine. So I've been using that for 30 years, and it still works. And that was not an expensive dehydrator. That was by no means a top-of-the-line dehydrator. I think I paid $50 for it at the time, and I was looking online at it myself. Right now you can buy that same model uh, it's a little hard to tell if it's the exact same model because it's been 30 years, but there's one that's similar to it for about $60 U.S., and another one that's uh, also similar to it, probably closer to what I have, that's a little over $100 U.S. Wow, so that's very reasonable. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest here. I tried to dehydrate some foods in the past. Mm-hmm. I got a cheap dehydrator from a local store, and... I can't remember what we were trying to dry, but we put it, whatever it was in there, and two days later, it still hadn't dried the food. It never quite worked, and we switched the trays around and whatever. So what happened to me? Like, you know, that was a real turnoff. <laughs> that would be. Probably, my guess is, without knowing what you had, there were a lot of dehydrators, still are out there, but um, a lot of cheap dehydrators don't have a fan they also don't have good thermostat control but a fan is essential to dehydrating because it has to move the air through and out and if you don't do that if you have a system where you're just heating the food uh, at 140 degrees or whatever you're dehydrating at that moisture just sits there it doesn't go anywhere and that food could actually spoil before Mm -hmm. it dries so A fan is absolutely critical to a dehydrator, and the old-style dehydrators, some of which are still available, like mine, has a fan on the bottom. It's a series of stacking trays, and there's a fan on the bottom, and it blows warm air up through the trays and then out the top. Modern dehydrators, they figured out that they could put the fan on top and blow the air down, and those work just as well. And then there are also... This is where you get into money on dehydrators. There's dehydrators that are called box style, and they look like a box with pull-out trays, and the fans on those are in the back wall. And so you put your trays in, and the air blows evenly across all of the foods, whereas with um, the type of dehydrator I have, which is the more common one, the fan is blowing from the top to the bottom or from the bottom to the top, whichever, but it's blowing through the trays. So the tray on the bottom or the tray on the top, the tray that's closest to the fan is indeed getting better air circulation than the ones at the other end of the stack. So So that sounds like designs, but the key is to have a thermostatic control that's you can change depending on what you're drying because different foods need different temperatures, but the fan is absolutely critical critical okay um we have a question from denise and she says hi susan love the radio show she's from alma quebec she says a question for your guest are commercial dehydrators from the big box stores i think she said um any good to use thank you so yeah the one the ones available in the big you know shops are they you think they might be good 
Yes, as long as you are getting one that has the, the things I've mentioned, um, if I understand the question, it's pretty easy to tell if you've got a decent one. If you've spent, uh, I'm giving numbers in U.S. dollars because that's what I'm familiar with, but if you spend $20 on a dehydrator, it's not going to be worth having. Mm-hmm, exactly, so and yeah, yeah. You do have to make sure that you're getting the minimum uh, requirements, and some of them have very low wattage. You can go anywhere from 200 watts up to 1,000 watts, and of course, one that's 1,000 watts can get hotter and is a little bit more efficient, but really dehydrating is done at a pretty low temperature, so the wattage isn't as critical. I, I would say one that's four to 500 watts would be a good starting point and up from there. Oh, good. Okay. We got another question here from Alicia from Montreal. Hi, Susan and Teresa. I'm wondering, what is the best way to dehydrate liquids such as eggs or milk? Hmm. Eggs and milk. Mm-hmm. These should really not be dehydrated in a home dehydrator. Um, they need a little bit more control than what we can do, and I never recommend doing them. Hmm. So that's kind of uh, a bit of bad news. I, de- you almost need professional equipment, equipment to do that. You almost need a freeze dryer, for example, to work with milk or eggs. Hmm. So it's not something you can really do at home. You can dry things that have um, maybe some egg in them, but it's been cooked, like a, a food mix or something. You can dry food mixes and things like that. But to just dehydrate eggs, unfortunately, there isn't a way to do it. You need to get the the stuff from the camping store, which is freeze-dried. Okay, that makes sense. Now, in your book, I, I love your book. It's a really wonderful resource, and you talk about other options. So let's say I don't want to go out and buy a dehydrator. So let's uh, start with the oven. Can you use your oven to dry foods? Yes, you can. The best ovens for drying food are ones that go pretty low. Um, some electric ovens go down to 150, which is ideal. Um, if you have a gas oven, you can actually dry just with the pilot light. Uh, if it's a good enough pilot light, um, you can turn it on and off. If your oven doesn't go to a low temperature, it's going to be pretty tough. But whenever you dehydrate in an oven, you have to, again, keep in mind, you need to keep that moisture moving off of the food. So you have to prop the door open and set up a little fan, you know, there's the little desktop fan type thing that blows into one side of the oven and kind of shoot it toward the back wall of the oven, and then it'll, the air will come out the other side. So you do have to prop it open. Okay. But that does work, and that's the way that most people try dehydrating when they're first learning about it because they don't want to spend $200 and find out that they don't like doing this. So they'll try something simple in their oven, and I always recommend that they start with apples. That's a really good thing to try dehydrating in an oven because they go pretty quick. They're very easy to get. Everybody's got apples, and the finished product is really good. They're easy to do. Okay, so let's let's talk about that, that with the apples. So let's say you're using your oven. You're doing an experiment. Mm-hmm. And how thinly do you have to slice the apples in order to, for this to be effective? And uh, what temperature would you put them in the oven on? Well, generally, fruits are done at a target temperature of 135 and 
when you're working with an oven, there's something to keep in mind that all ovens turn on and off throughout their cycle, whether you're dehydrating or baking or whatever you're doing, you would notice that your oven kind of sometimes comes on and then it goes for a little bit and then it, it actually turns itself off for a while and then it comes back on when its own thermostat tells it that it needs to. So when we say we're dehydrating at 135, it sometimes is as high as 150, possibly more, and it's sometimes as low as 120. So that 135 is kind of an average. So that's the first thing to keep in mind if you're checking a thermometer to see how your oven's doing. Don't be alarmed if you see that it uh, fluctuates in temperature. That's normal. So the way to do apples is to slice them, oh, you know, quarter of an inch thick. Uh, you may peel them or not peel them, depending on how you like it. The peels will definitely get tougher when they're dry, but that's okay. And the biggest question when you start getting into dehydrating is are you going to pre-treat them because fruits like apples will turn brown and any commercially purchased dried apples that you buy have been sulfided unless they're from an organic store. But you don't have to do that. You can, there's all kinds of pre-treatments you can do. You can dry them untreated. And if you, at the simplest, if you want to dry untreated apples, which I do all the time, you just cut them and put them on like a, what I would call a cookie cooling rack, you know, some sort of ventilated rack, wire rack. And you can put that in your oven and just turn it on and adjust the heat, get the fan blowing in there, and it'll take maybe three or four hours. Hmm. That and would, with mm -hmm. an oven, when you're doing something like that, you're going to want to... You, those trays you do have to take out and rotate because you're in a less controlled situation. You know, you're kind of doing it uh, with a, it's not a cheating method, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not something that's designed to do dehydrating. So you have to periodically take your tray out, rotate it front to back, and as the first hour or two passes, you might want to rearrange the apples on your rack because the ones at the outside of the rack will dry more quickly than the ones on the inside of the rack because they're closer to the walls of the oven, which will be warmer. So you take a rack out and move the apples around so that you're bringing the ones from the center to the edges and vice versa. So you kind of have to fiddle with it a little bit when you're doing it, but it's not bad. You do it maybe every half hour or something. You rotate the rack or move the food around. And then after probably three hours, what you would do is take a couple of apple slices out, let them cool to room temperature, and then test them to see if they feel dry. They should be leathery, but flexible. They shouldn't be crisp. They won't be crisp or hard. You think about a dried apple slice that you buy in the store, and they're kind of like that. But you always want to check the dryness at room temperature. If you take it, if you try to manipulate a piece of dried food right out of the oven, it's still warm, so it's going to be softer. Mm -hmm. So you need to cool it to room temperature and see if it feels flexible and leathery. And you can bite into it or cut into it and see if there's any moisture in the middle, which there should not be. And if, that's, if that apple is done, 
you can start taking the apples off the tray and they might not all be done that are on the tray. It's very common to have to remove part of your load and let the rest continue to dehydrate because things might dehydrate unevenly, especially in an oven. I think that's a good example because it empowers you to do a little experiment. And like you say, the apple experiment could increase your confidence, at least for somebody like me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, the, so. first thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the first thing to try. And like I say, apples are very common. They're very easy to dehydrate. And if you do no pretreatment, when those apples come out, they'll be kind of um, tawny colored is what I always call it. And they will stay that way at room temperature for months, probably. They really don't brown up that fast. They will gradually turn brown. And if you leave them in a jar for a year, they'll get brown. Not real brown, but they'll get brown. Some varieties brown more than others, um, as I'm sure anybody who's ever made a salad with apples in it will notice. Some kind of turn brown in the salad before you eat it, and some don't. And the same is true for dehydrating them, too. So we have a question from George from Springdale, Newfoundland. Now, he asks, and you answered this for apples, but he asks, what temperature should I use to dehydrate? And I guess, he says, thank you. Um, I guess my question here, is it always the same temperature no matter what you're doing, whether it's apples or cherries or apricots? How do we know about the temperatures we should be using to dehydrate Generally, food? 135 is the temperature you would dehydrate fruits at because they are high moisture, but they're also very high sugar. And so they tend to, uh, the sugar keeps the surface from drying out before the inside has a chance to dry. Whereas if you try to dry vegetables, you have to use a lower temperature because they, have, they may have the same amount of moisture, but they have less sugar. And so what happens with them, if you have like sliced green peppers or cucumbers or something like that or eggplant, it's not as sweet and the outside dries before the inside has had a chance to start drying and it's called case hardening. And so what that means is that you've got kind of a skin on the outside of that slice and the moisture can't get out from the inside of the slice anymore. Now, fruit doesn't do that because of the sugar. So mm -hmm. vegetables are dehydrated at a lower temperature, 125. And some people follow what's called a living or a raw foods diet where they basically don't eat any cooked foods, but they do use some dried foods and those uh, food should be dried at 105 to 110, basically. So it's going to take a long time, but the stuff will still dry, and it has never been heated beyond 110. And so for the raw foods, living foods thing, that apparently is the cutoff point. I don't do that, but I'm aware of it. So. Hmm. Now, we got an, an email as well from Harry. Hi, what is the advantage of drying food yourself over buying in dried foods? Thank you. Over buying them? Yeah, buying them. He's from well, Andover, by the way. we've certainly got the option to dry things that we can't buy. Um, for example, rhubarb that I mentioned earlier. Um, there's a lot of things that are, you may, you may pick service berries and dry them, or saskatoons or whatever you want to call them. You can't buy those dried. I've never seen it. Um, you can dry things like apples without using any sulfites and virtually, or raisins, 
without sulfite. And virtually all of those things, if you buy them, unless you get them at a health food store or organic store or co-op, if you buy normal grocery store dried apples or dried apricots or anything, they've been sulfited. And some people have uh, basically an allergic response to sulfite. Some people just don't like it because it's a chemical. Mm. So when you dry your own, you don't have to use sulfite. You don't have to pretreat at all if you don't want to. There's certain pretreatments you can do which will prevent browning and help them to retain their softness when dry. But it's up to you. You don't have to use that. Well, so you've got a better variety. You can control what's in there, and you can just make things that are different than what you can buy. For example, dried plums. You can dry plums that have red skins or yellow skins or whatever, and the dried plum, which is what we would call a prune, isn't black. It's reddish or greenish or purplish, whatever color that the fruit was. And those are really interesting. Plums are one of my favorite things to dry because they are unlike the prunes that you buy. The prunes that you buy are a variety called prune plums, and they're bluish black, and so they dry into that blackish thing that we think of a prune being. Those are also highly sulfited and usually sugared, so they're very soft and almost sticky gummy. And if you dry your own plums, they can be all different colors of the rainbow. They're really Plums are really fun to dry. They're really great. Hmm. Especially if you grow them yourself. That would be fantastic. And then you know it's all your own product. We've yeah. got Yeah, we've got an email from Anthony from Baltimore. Uh, good question. Can you dehydrate in the open dry air on racks with a fan? In the open meaning just... Outside, if it's a, outside. I guess, yeah. In yeah, the- you can if you're in a good climate zone for it. Um, so Anthony's in, in Midwest, Baltimore. Which is where I live. I'm in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And we have a tremendous amount of humidity in the summer. Very hard to air dry. You can do it, but it's going to take a long time. You need to be in an area and do it at a time when you're assured of three to four days of sunny weather without rain and as minimal humidity as possible, you can do it. Um, it's best in for people that live in very dry, hot climates, such as the desert southwest in America, you know, uh, New Mexico and Arizona, that kind of stuff. That's They have great climates for that. Um, if you're in a humid area, it's pretty tough. On the west coast, it's pretty tough because it's it's very, very humid, for example. But you can set up drying racks with uh, window screens, for example, old window screens, or you can make frames like that and put plastic screens on them. There's all kinds of things you can do. What you have to do is set it up with a covering over it, cheesecloth or some kind of plastic mesh to keep birds and bugs off of it because they are going to be all over that stuff. And then once food has been, it takes a long time to air dry food or sun dry as we call it, can be done. Um, you have to bring it in at night and it should be pretty partially dried by then, but it's not going to be ready. And then you put it out again the next morning, start drying some more. And when it's dry, those foods should be pasteurized by either freezing for a certain amount of time at below zero or heating in an oven 
because it is possible that insects have come and laid eggs on them and you wouldn't know about this. And so your food would be highly compromised during storage. So those are the foods that have to be pasteurized. So when you say heating them in, an, in the oven, so they're already dried and then you pop them in the oven at what temperature for how long in order to ensure that the foods are pasteurized? Uh, it's pretty. It's about 300 degrees for 20 minutes or something like that. It's not a real long time. It's just a matter of making sure that you've killed off any bugs. Okay. Um, that's pretty much it. That's good. So, well, here. I'll tell you what, we've got we've got some more great emails that have come in, and I want, there are some great questions. But first, why don't we listen to a few words from our sponsors? Are you okay, Teresa, just hanging on the line for a few minutes? If I can hear them. Yeah, you, I think you're going to hear the commercials. We'll just uh, get you to hold on. Don't hang up. We've got lots more to talk about, okay? And then we'll be back okay. with you in a minute. Thank you. Well, that's wonderful. So thank you. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. And on this show, we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. I'm Susan Poisner, the author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we're going to be back with lots more questions and answers about dehydrating food and fruits in just a moment. See you then. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to EarthAliveCT.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply, and all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-saw.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out orchardpeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. 
Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at orchardpeople.com by visiting orchardpeople.com workshops. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send Susan an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and this is the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. On this live radio show and podcast, we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. Thanks so much for tuning in. So today on the show, we're talking about dehydrating your bounty. And my guest today is Teresa Maroney, the Minnesota-based author of the book, The Beginner's Guide to Dehydrating Food. Now, if you are listening to the show live, you can actually win a copy of Teresa's beautiful full-color book, valued at $24.95. To enter the contest, just send us an email right now with a question, a comment, or just to say hi. Remember to send me your first name and tell me where you're writing from. Send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. So, Teresa, we've talked about so many good things so far today about uh, dehydrating tools, you know, what tools you should be using. We've got a question here from Joyce. And Joyce says, Hi, Susan. Great show today. A different type of question for your guest. How do I store my food for long term versus short term after dehydrating? Thank you. So what do you think, uh, Teresa, about Joyce's question here? Okay, I kind of missed a little bit of that. Are we talking about storing foods? Exactly. Okay, great. Yeah. There's a couple of options that you can do. Um, At the simplest, you can just keep your dried foods in a canning jar or a plastic uh, bag if you want to have a little snack by your desk or whatever. For longer-term storage, more than a couple of weeks or something on the countertop, You can put them in a dark, cool area like a closet. A root cellar is perfect. And again, in canning jars or something that airtight is the best. What you want to do is make sure that there's no moisture in there. So before you try to store food for long term, you want to do what's called conditioning, which is important to do if you're going to be keeping your food for more than a a couple of days, which is generally the case. So you put it into, after it comes out of the dehydrator and is cool, you put it into like a quart canning jar, a glass jar, seal it, put it on the counter for three or four days and watch it. And if there's any moisture that starts to appear inside the glass, then you open the jar, 
put the stuff back into the dehydrator and dehydrate it some more because there's still moisture in it. So once it's been conditioned, you can keep it in your glass jar, which is really ideal. If you have a um, vacuum system, you can seal it in vacuum bags, and some uh, vacuum systems have a little uh, hose mechanism that you can attach to special canning jar lids, and it will take the air out of the canning jar. And this does help for long-term storage. Another thing you can do, if you don't have a vacuum preserver like that, you can get um, vacuum packing oxygen absorbers is what they're called. They're little packets of iron oxide. And you get those at sort of, that's a specialty item. It's places that that, uh, deal in emergency preparedness and stuff. They sell these for people that want to stockpile a lot of dried foods. And it's a little packet. You put your dried food in a glass jar. You put one of these little packets in. You immediately seal the jar, and the oxygen absorber actually sucks the air out of the jar and seals the jar lid. You have to use a new jar lid. And it'll actually pop down as though you've canned it. And that stuff will keep forever. Wow. Um, So that's one way to do it. But those are a little bit hard to come by. You can, uh, if you have freezer space, you can freeze your dehydrated foods in bags or jars. And it takes up room, but it will help preserve it. And if you have made something um, that's prone to spoilage, like dehydrated jerky, it is best to store that in the freezer or refrigerator, but, you know, fruits and vegetables can also be kept in the freezer. The other thing you can do to preserve your food a little longer is go to a florist or a hobby shop and get what's called silica gel, which is a, it's kind of a crystalline substance. It's very cheap, very easy to come by. And you can put a couple tablespoons into a paper coffee filter and tie it shut. You can put a half cup into a little cloth bag or a clean like a child's a baby sock, a cotton baby sock, and tie that shut with a string, and put that in your jar, and that will absorb any moisture that does come out. And periodically, this sounds crazy, but this is all true, periodically you pull that little thing out, you open up the, uh, the coffee filter or the sock or the bag or whatever you've got this silica gel in, and if it starts to turn pink, that's a sign that it, is, it has got moisture in it now, and so you take that silica gel itself and you spread it in your dehydrator and you dry it until it's white again. Then you put it back in the jar. Huh. So that, that's incredible because, especially because when I think about dehydrated foods, like the stuff that you get from the health food store, you know, dried apples, dried plums, whatever, mm-hmm. you think it's just going to last forever. I would never think of putting that stuff in the freezer. And I might leave it in the cupboard for a month or two. Oh, that's no problem. Now, how is that different than my homegrown or my home dehydrated foods? Because you're talking about lots of different methods. You mentioned that if you, you can leave stuff on the counter and, or eat it in a few days, or here are some other options. Like, when do I know when I need to really use those other options? Well, I think some of it depends on what you've dehydrated and how well you've done it. If you get the moisture down to... Uh, we're trying to get the moisture down to 10 to 20%, and most fruits and vegetables that we'd be dehydrating started at 80 or 90% moisture. So you're really taking a lot of moisture out. And if if you've done a good job, and you can put that your dehydrated apples into a 
canning jar and put a lid on it and stick it in your cupboard so that it's out of the light, that'll keep for a year. If it's not hot, it may start to darken if you haven't pretreated it, but it'll be fine. So okay. that's not a problem to leave things for a long time. They will retain their color better if they're in a freezer or a dark area. If you think about herbs in your dried herbs in your kitchen cabinet, if you you know that if you leave those out on the cupboard or I mean excuse me on the countertop for a month or so that those herbs will start to fade in color. I'm sure you've seen this. Mm-hmm. And that's the same kind of thing that's going on with all dried foods. I mean, herbs are just a, another dried food, and they tend to discolor. They either darken or they get, uh, herbs will get dull-looking instead of nice green, whatever they were. This is all just a matter of um, enzymes at work that are working to they they de- uh, they make the food look uh, darker or a, a funny color, or they get harder. They get less soft. Um, so, so basically, when unless it's jerky or something like that, which you suggest we should freeze, we if we've done a good job at dehydrating the food, we should be able to maybe vacuum pack it or something and leave it for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, but these are other options if you want to keep things a very long time or if you want to keep them looking a little bit prettier. That's exactly right. And, you know, when you buy dried foods from the store, as I say, most have been sulfided and they've, some have been treated with sugars and things, and we can do these things at home ourselves when we're dehydrating. We can use sulfites if we want. We can sugar them. We can do all kinds of things, and they will keep better. A fruit that has been blanched in syrup before it's been dehydrated will keep better and stay softer longer than a than a fruit that has had no pretreatment. So that's so interesting. We can, <laughs> or you know, we can sulfide it and all that stuff, and then that stuff will keep just as long as something that you bought at the store. So it you've really got a lot of control over how you handle that food before you dehydrate it. If you pretreat it you are knocking back some of the enzymes that cause spoilage or deterioration, same as a commercial processor does. So you can do these things at home. If you don't pretreat, I've kept apples that I've dried with no pretreatment. I've kept them in a jar in the cupboard for probably close to a year. And they get, instead of looking tawny, they look a little more tan, but they're still okay. They're still fine. Fantastic. And by the way, for the listeners, um, in Teresa's book, she talks about all these different pre-treatments. We'll try and talk about it later in the show. But uh, yeah, there's just so much great information. We have an email from Brian. This is lovely. Hi, Susan. New listener here from Fairbanks, Alaska. Love the tips and tricks from your guest today. I have been dehydrating foods for over 10 years and never knew some of the advice that your guest has spoken about. Thank you. Again, love your radio show, Brian. Thank you, Brian. That's great. And isn't, I mean, I think, uh, Teresa, that's what I felt when I read your book and when we first chatted on the phone in our little pre-interview. It's like, wow, I didn't know that there was so much potential in dehydrating foods. And some of the recipes that you offer in your book are very, very interesting as well. Yeah, there's more to it than people think. It's not just throwing some onions in the dehydrator and saying, well, that's what I did. I mean, you can make fruit leathers and you can dehydrate. uh, There's all kinds of things you can dehydrate that you wouldn't have thought of. For example, 
you know, you open up a can of tomato paste because the recipe calls for two tablespoons of tomato paste. Well, now you've got probably four tablespoons left in that can. What are you going to do with that? Well, you can stick it in your fridge, you can freeze it, you can do whatever. Or next time you're running your dehydrator, you take a little what are called uh, dryer sheets, which is a solid sheet that you use to dry leathers, fruit leathers and things that get too small and they'll fall through uh, screens and stuff. And you can take your tomato paste and make a little blob of it, kind of spread it out and dry it, and it becomes a, t- a little tomato paste leather, hmm. which you can store in the cupboard, you can store it in the freezer, you can do anything you want with it. And then next time you have a recipe that needs a tablespoon of tomato paste, you just take out one of your little leathers, because you've done it in a tablespoon at a time, and you just mix it with a little hot water and boom, tomato paste. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so handy. So, okay, well, let's talk. I want, there's so much more I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about some recipes. I want to talk about different fruits. Something I was thinking about was cranberries. But let's uh, hear a few words from our sponsors, and then we will dive back in and talk some more. Teresa, you okay waiting on the line again for a minute? Okay. Okay, wonderful. So you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And we're going to be back to chat a little bit more after this commercial break. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Wiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hello, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. And I'm Susan Poisner, creator of the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com, and the author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. So today our topic is dehydrating the harvest. And 
My guest is Teresa Maroney, the Minnesota-based author of The Beginner's Guide to Dehydrating Food. So it's a beautiful book. And if you are listening to this live broadcast, or if you're listening to this broadcast live, you can win a copy of the book, but just by sending us an email. Send us an email to instudio101 at gmail.com with your question, a comment, or just to say hi. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. I really look forward to hearing from you. So, Teresa, we have talked about so much. We've talked about the equipment for dehydrating food. We've talked about doing your first experiment on on apples and drying apples. When I was flipping through your book, you go through all the different foods you can dehydrate. And and I noticed that some of them are trickier than others. One that jumped into my mind just now was cranberries. So I guess some types of foods need to be um, boiled before you can dehydrate them, can you talk to me a little bit about about how we would dehydrate cranberries? Okay, so uh, our connection is getting actually a little bit worse than it was, but I believe you were asking about boiling fruits to check them before we dehydrate. Yes, exactly. Okay, so some fruits, um, cranberries, blueberries, uh, service berries, uh you can do this with grapes too. They require they have tough outer skins or they have a waxy bloom on the outside like a blueberry does. If you think about it, it's kind of whitish on the outside. And that is that bloom as it's called is uh resistant to air and moisture. And so what we need to do is put tiny breaks in the surfaces of the skin in order to let the moisture come out of the center of the fruit. And with cranberries, the best way to do that, because they're pretty hard, uh, you just dip them in boiling water for a little bit, and then you dump them into cold water, and it causes little what are called checks or breaks in the skin. You can do that with blueberries, and it does work, but they tend to get soft because they're already pretty soft. What I find works best for checking blueberries and service berries is to actually freeze them first um, flat on a baking sheet so that they're in a single layer. And then when I'm ready to dehydrate them, I put them into, in a, you know, maybe a cup or two at a time into a colander or a strainer of some kind, and I run very hot tap water over them for about 30 seconds. And I shake that off, and then I put them onto the dehydrating trays, and because they've been frozen, the skins, when they hit get hit by the hot water, they kind of break open a little bit, and so that's the checking, and that's the easiest way to do that with uh, blueberries or soft berries, and the berry itself is still frozen, but the outside, the skin has broken, and so when the berry starts, when you put it into the dehydrator, the interior will saw and the moisture can get out through the little breaks in the skin. Well, so what, that's the easiest way to deal with those. That makes a lot of sense. But what about with plums? Because, you know, with apples, you're slicing them very thinly. But with plums, aren't you putting in the whole fruit with the seed inside and everything? How does it actually completely dry? With an apple? With, with a plum, would you, uh, oh, you know? Plum. No, yeah. I'm sorry. With plums, you do want, you have to pit them. Oh, you do so, have to pit them. Do you have to slice them? Yes, you do them? have to pit them. So you can, if you've got a free stone, 
you can cut it in half until you hit the pit and then twist it in your hands and the, the pit will pop out. If you've got clingstone varieties, those are a little tougher to do. But plums are, if you think about prunes, you know, they don't have pits in them. At least I don't think I've ever seen a purchased prune that had a pit in it. So that's the same thing as a plum. So if you want to, uh, with cherries, for example, if you want to dry some cherries and you want to dry them whole, you can do that. But you need to use a cherry pitter, which is the one I have is like a little, I don't know, it's a little plunger sort of device. And I put the cherry in it, and then I push down this. It's got like a hole, a donut on the bottom. And I push a little plunger, and it pops the pit out. Mm -hmm. So then I can dry my cherries whole if I want to, but they will dry more quickly if I cut them in half because they're going to be more exposed to the heat of the dehydrator. So with plums, yeah, you want to get the pit out, and you can dry a half of a plum. Um, you want to, if you're going to do that, you want to take your, uh, get once you get the pit out and you've got your plum half, you want to push from the skin toward the inside to like pop the fruit inside out mm. so that you're exposing more flesh to the to the air. And so or you can slice them or whatever you want to do or dice them. So with the plum, you don't have to worry about boiling it to break the skin as you do with a cranberry. I guess the skin. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Um, so yeah, those were, those are, you're going to be handling it enough to, to get some, some air into them. So we've got a question here from Chase. Hi, the question of the day for your guest is dehydrated food healthier than non-dehydrated foods? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wouldn't say it's any different it, because you might have a slight nutrient loss just because it is exposed to some heat and some air. So I suppose it is losing a little bit, but I think it's pretty minimal. And when it's dehydrated, it's a more concentrated food source. So you probably are going to eat a little bit more of it than you would have if it was a fresh fruit or vegetable. Um, So you probably do lose a little bit, but this isn't... um, at high heat, it's you're not going to have a lot of nutrient loss from from heat, unlike boiling. So I don't know if that answered the question. I, I think that's, that's a good that answer. I think that's a very good answer. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about one of your favorite. You had told me one of your favorite recipes is candied fruit, and that you give it as a gift, like for Christmas or whatever. Can you tell us briefly what is candied fruit? How do you make it with your dehydrator? Oh boy. Candied fruit is wonderful. I mean, if you uh, if you can handle a lot of sugar, because that's there's a lot of sugar involved in candying. Um, a lot of fruits can be candied. For example, candied apples are pro- again probably a really good thing to start with. And what you do is you make a syrup that is. It's got let's see. You put a cup. It's got a cup of honey, and it's got a half cup water and a cup of white sugar. And you cook that until it reaches 235 degrees, which is, uh, that's kind of a soft boil almost. And so then you take your fruit and you've cut it up. In the case of apples, the way I like to do them for holiday is I peel them and then I use an apple corer to push out the core and I slice the apples so that I've got rings. 
and then you simmer that in the syrup for it's like 15 minutes and then what you're doing is you're exchanging some of the water with sugar so that's exactly what's happening so then you take them out of the syrup and you put them into your dehydrator and you dry them and the apple slices become translucent when they're candied they look almost like stained glass mm. and so i like to partially dip them in melted chocolate like half chocolate and half not chocolate or to drizzle some ribbons of chocolate over them or something like that. I'll also candy things like pineapple or plums or cherries or strawberries or all kinds of things. And again, for gift giving, you can partially dip those into chocolate if you want to dress them up. I like to give boxes, little gift boxes of mixed candied fruits. Some are partially dipped in chocolate and some aren't. And they become very jewel-like, like uh, like a, a candied strawberry looks like a little ruby they're they're shiny they're glossy they're deep red they're really pretty and they're very very tasty and they also make the best fruit cake in the world i bet you you are very popular with your friends (laughs) (laughs) not very many friends get my candy oh okay i was wondering if i could put myself on the list but i guess not (laughs) that's okay we can talk about that. We can talk. We can negotiate. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have, we've had lots of emails in, and it is time to figure out who wins a beautiful copy of your book. And if you were here in the studio with me, I'd get you to pick the person. But I'm just going to mix around the names in this little plastic container, and we'll see who wins a copy of your book. I'm opening it up. And let's see who we've got. Okay, we've got Denise in Quebec. Denise wins the prize. All right. So that is very nice. Okay, so enjoy. Denise, we're going to send you an email. We're going to get your address. We're going to send you your copy of the book. And thank you, Teresa, for spending this wonderful time with us on the show and sharing all your knowledge. And um, if anybody wants a copy of your book, where do you think they could get hold of it? Well, any bookstore can get any book that you want as long as you know the name. I always encourage people to go to a local independent bookstore. That's just the way that I am. But that said, you can get that book at Amazon or any kind, you know, Barnes & Noble, any of the online booksellers also have it. And the big booksellers, you know, the Barnes & Noble uh, stores actually have it too. But any Small bookstore can order this book if you have the title. Okay, well, I hope people will uh, check it out, get it out of the library at least, because it's an awesome book, and I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Uh, Okay, take care. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. That was Teresa Maroney, author of the book, The Beginner's Guide to Dehydrating Foods. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did like it, I have lots more information on my website at orchardpeople.com. Now, if you're ready to up your fruit tree care game, why don't you check out my online fruit tree care training course? My students include arborists, master gardeners, urban agriculturalists, and home growers. You can learn about it at orchardpeople.com workshops. So you've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101, And I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you next month. 
You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at UrbanFruitTrees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.